If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Neville Chamberlain's reputation has taken something of a battering over the past 80 years. He's been widely cast as the author of Appeasement, the buttoned-up PM who fell for Hitler's lies hook, line and sinker, ensuring that when war broke out, Britain was hopelessly underprepared. Yet according to Walter Reed, this characterisation isn't quite fair. In his new book, Neville Chamberlain, The Passionate Radical, Walter argues that not only did Chamberlain help make Britain a fairer, kinder nation in the 1920s, he was fully aware of the threat posed by Nazi Germany and acted accordingly. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, he puts the case forward for Chamberlain's defence. Well, firstly, Walter, I was quite taken by the, the title of your new book, Neville Chamberlain, The Passionate Radical, I've always had this image in my head, and I guess I'm not entirely alone in this, of Chamberlain as a, as a kind of bloodless politician, a, sort of the, the ultimate 
buttoned-up establishment figure. But in your book, you argue that this caricature is a little simplistic and unfair. So in what respect was Neville Chamberlain a passionate radical? Well, first of all, I agree with you that the image he gave to posterity is of a very buttoned-up man, always carrying his umbrella, and he kind of looked as if he was a a kind of wrapped-up umbrella himself. But what I was interested in was, first of all, he, he is radical. He was never a conservative. He was, um, like his father, the great Joe Chamberlain, he was a liberal unionist. And he, although he became leader of the Conservative Party, he was never actually a member of the Conservative Party. He saw himself as a liberal in the tradition of Joe, who was often called the, the great radical. And he eschewed, and we can talk about details perhaps later on, um, but he eschewed conventional Tory politics. What he wanted to do was to improve the lot of working men. Like his father, he had he became the Lord Mayor of Birmingham, then the second biggest city of the empire, had enormous powers, and he wanted to do boring things, wanted to work with drains and water supply and clean housing. He wanted to improve the lot of the ordinary man, and this this continued through his life. He was determined uh, as Minister of Health, two stints Minister of Health. He was determined to make radical improvements to the lot of ordinary people. To the extent he was called, the, even in Parliament, he was sometimes referred to as a socialist, which rather surprised me. But yeah. he he didn't mind that. He, he didn't mind what people called him as long as he could get things done. So he was radical in that sense and is passionate about that and he flirted with the the left at an early stage then he departed when he was in parliament he increasingly alienated the labor party but he was always equally irritating to the traditional conservatives because he was doing things that they didn't much like either and he throughout his life actually he wanted to get rid of the conservative name to the Tory party. He, and that was one of the reasons he was so keen on the national government, the coalition that was formed between the parties after the great financial crisis of 1930, because he saw this as a way of uniting the country behind radical policies. So, so he was a man, he disguised it. He didn't like to reveal his feelings in public. He was buttoned up. He wasn't a particularly nice man. Um, I, I say, I think, somewhere in the book that I can only think of Edward Heath as an equally unpleasant prime minister. <laughs> but that didn't mean he didn't feel strongly. In fact, it was partly because he felt so strongly that he was so intolerant of other people. Now, as you write, Neville Chamberlain's historical leg- legacy is dominated by appeasement in Munich 1938. And there's this image of, of this man with, as you put it, his wing collar and irritating moustache and unbelievable capacity for credulity, waving a piece of white paper at an aerodrome. Now, what's one of the reasons you wrote this book to try and salvage Chamberlain from the ignominy of this moment and to try and save his reputation in some respects? Yeah, but not a not a personal mission on behalf of Chamberlain, but I thought that the history deserved to be more accurate than the way it's portrayed. Um, 
Why is it portrayed that way? Well, uh, he, he was, as I say, not a very likable man. And latterly, he came to alienate the Labour Party hugely. Uh, so no one was particularly batting for him. But the biggest problem he had really was that Hitler, that the history was written by someone else. History, the history of these years was written predominantly by Churchill. Churchill said, poor Chamberlain, he's going to have a bad time in history. I know that because I'm going to write that history. <laughs> and, of course, he, Churchill wrote his wonderful history of the Second World War, which is a, is a work of propaganda. It's a sort of Manichaean story, a battle between good and evil, uh, so when Churchill said, I know poor Neville's going to come out of history badly, he made absolutely sure of that because he simplified the whole war into a heroic conflict between good and evil with himself, Winston Churchill, obviously at its centre. Chamberlain wasn't the only person to come out of this badly. It's well known that Sir Alan Brooks, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, was furious when he read the book and found he was scarcely mentioned, although he arguably he was almost as important as Churchill in evolving the strategy that won the war. Similarly, um, Chamberlain was left out of it. Uh, it was a titanic battle between good and evil. Churchill was the personification of good. Personification of evil, of course, primarily was, was, was Hitler. But in Britain, the people to blame for the situation in which Britain found itself in 1940, according to Churchill, were first Stanley Baldwin, but close second Neville Chamberlain. And that's, you know, that's the history we, we were given as, as young boys, young men, young women. It's the history that was kind of perpetuated in the wonderful war films of the Second World War and in the, the kind of heroic books about the army and the navy that came out after the war, and it's still perpetuated in some of the recent films about Churchill that we've seen, good though they are, they don't present a nuanced story of these years. And that, that really was what I was trying to do, not because I felt terribly warm towards Chamberlain, but just because I thought that the, it, the story is so simplified and so erroneous, and we deserve to understand it a little better than that. How would you describe his relationship with Churchill? That's a very good question, Spencer. It's a complicated history. They were very different men, obviously. Doesn't really need saying. But they worked quite closely as a team. When Chamberlain went back to the Ministry of Health, Churchill was Chancellor of the Exchequer under Baldwin. And both men saw that they had to work together to get the sort of changes to society that they wanted. So they, they worked well enough then. Then Churchill goes into the wilderness years. He is out of sympathy totally with appeasement. And maybe we could talk later about what appeasement actually meant. Yeah. Churchill famously foresaw a war with Germany. So he was out of sympathy with, particularly with Baldwin, not so much with Chamberlain. Chamberlain didn't much like Churchill or didn't much respect Churchill because he thought he was an opportunist and he was everything that Chamberlain wasn't. But then the, the war comes along and Chamberlain is brought 
into, I'm sorry, Churchill is brought into government by Chamberlain, slightly reluctantly, but there's a tremendous demand for him amongst the press and the the press lords uh, and the public generally. So they come in and to begin with, Chamberlain kind of steps back and it's a kind of a relationship almost of equals in which Chamberlain takes care of the domestic war and Churchill is increasingly allowed to take care of the fighting war. And Churchill very much likes that. Uh, he realises he's been given a free reign uh, with enormous powers. He effectively takes over the running of the, re- the relevant cabinets and committees. And then, of course, uh, we get to the debacle of Norway, where arguably Churchill, who's First Lord of the Admiralty and who's really as much behind Norway as anyone else, uh, arguably he was more to blame than Chamberlain, but no one wanted Chamberlain to stay, and the more Churchill said, it's my fault, the more in the Norway debate people shouted him down and said, no, it's not, don't try and take the blame, it's Chamberlain's fault. The Labour Party wanted rid of him, and uh, a significant chunk of the Conservative Party wanted rid of him too because they felt he the war wasn't being waged vigorously enough. So they, they swap places. Churchill becomes Prime Minister and Chamberlain becomes his deputy, so it's the other way around. But at that stage, Churchill's very unpopular with the Tory party. They won't won't even cheer him when he speaks. Um, Chamberlain gets all the cheers. The only cheers Churchill gets from the Labour benches. So he's wholly dependent on Chamberlain. And it's widely thought, actually, at that stage, 1940, that after this anomalous situation, Churchill will step down and Chamberlain will come back as leader of the Conservative Party. Well, he is, he is still leader of the Conservative Party. He'll come back as Prime Minister. Chamberlain thought that. A lot of Tories thought that. So Churchill has to handle him very carefully. And he is, he's very... And I think there's more to it than self-interest, actually. I think he felt a sense of loyalty and duty to this man who had promoted him. And so even after... Poor Chamberlain, who develops incurable cancer quite soon after stepping down as Prime Minister, and he's he's very ill. Churchill is really very decent to him. He sends dispatch writers riders down to Chamberlain's house to keep him informed, particularly about the outcome of the Battle of Britain, which is starting to go our way. And I think he really felt quite sorry for his old chief. He speaks very... He, in fact, he's in tears. He's always, Churchill's always in tears, of course, at the drop of a hat, and he was in, he was in tears at uh, Chamberlain's funeral, where he was one of the pallbearers. And although he, he did make sure that poor Neville came out of the history kind of badly, he never put the boot in to Chamberlain as he did to Baldwin, whom he saw as the man who was really responsible for Britain's lack of preparedness for the Second World War. So let's rewind a few decades to Chamberlain's early life. Politics was certainly in his blood, wasn't it? Um, For as you've mentioned, he was the son of the statesman Joseph Chamberlain, who, as you observe in your book, he venerated. What was Joseph's influence on the young Neville? That's a huge question, and I don't think I'll... You'd want me to take up as much time as I'd need to answer it fully. It was enormous. Sure. He he had a huge respect for Joe. Joe was a I mean, Joe was an amazing man. He was the most important politician Britain has had since uh, Gladstone, in my view. He smashed the Liberal Party. 
Uh, he was a member of the Liberal Party, but he dissented over Ireland and he put the Liberal Party out of power for 20 years. Then he crosses the floor, he becomes a Conservative, and over tariff reform this time, he puts the Conservative Party out of power for 20 years. So it really was quite an achievement. Peel famously put the Conservatives out of power for 20 years over um, the Corn Law repeal, but I don't think anyone else has managed to dish both parties. It's a unique double. And he did it because he was a man of enormous force of personality. So I think his son, he's got two politician sons, as you know, Austin and his half-brother Neville. Both of them try to emulate their father in different ways. Uh, Austin looked exactly like his father, dressed like him with the, the orchids and the eyeglass and so on. Neville didn't copy him so obviously in appearance or demeanor, but he carried forward his policies, he carried forward his liberal unionism. Austin was a liberal unionist, but he was much more a Tory, he was much more an orthodox Tory than Neville was. Neville rocked the Tory boat in that he espoused policies that were not popular with mainstream Tories, whereas Austin preferred to be pretty, very orthodox. Roy Jenkins once said that if someone had ordered a statesman from Harrods, uh, what they would have got, what would have been delivered, would have been something that looked very like Austin Chamberlain. Neville was was his own man. So he carried forward uh, the liberal unionism, the radicalism of Joe Chamberlain, and he also carried forward this opposition to free trade, the, the espousal of tariff reform. So he completed in the 1920s what uh, Joe had begun in a speech of 1903. And he put an end to this incredible tradition of free trade, which was almost a religion from the 1840s till 1920, whatever it was, that he abolished it finally. To challenge free trade was almost like challenging the idea that it was a bad idea to have eat babies for breakfast. It was a, it was a, a radical alteration with something that had become uh, more than a political creed. Uh, so that was that was perhaps the biggest single way in which he carried forward the legacy of his his father. Now, you include this wonderful anecdote of, and I quote, a bronzed hunk, his shirt open to the waist, splashing through the Caribbean. And then you also write the Chamberlain pinned up illustrations of a popular daily exercise routine and perform them every day. Now, this is certainly not the image of the Chamberlain I had in my head. So, so what do those two anecdotes tell us about the man, do you think? I think it tells you quite a number of things. He, what the, the backstory here, as you know, is that Joe wanted to expand his financial empire to make more money, really to support his career and Austin's career. So he hits on what is a pretty daft idea of growing sisal, which is a kind of fibre uh, in the West Indies. And the second son, Neville, is chosen to go and do this. It's he slightly against his better judgment, but Austin and Joe think it's a good idea and he's a dutiful son, so he goes off and he lives very rough on the fringes of the empire, as I say, sort of splashing through the waves like Daniel Craig, swimming with sharks and sailing a single-handed yacht around the place. Um, he's there for four, almost five years. The thing doesn't go well. 
increasingly they find that it, it, it's not a good business venture at all. And he has to come back. But he has grown up hugely. He's, he goes off as a rather sort of weedy young man, pretty well straight from school, and comes back uh, having run this vast empire single-handed. He's the only European in miles. He's laboring with his laborers barefoot in really conditions of, of very demanding physical exertion. The thing goes badly, and this is the interesting thing, that he comes back and he says, I mean, he knows it's not his fault, really, but he said, if this had gone well, I would have claimed the credit. It's not gone well, so I've got to take the blame. And the family lose a lot of money on the venture, and he feels very guilty about this. And for 20 years, he's still saying to people, oh, this reminds me of Andros, that was the name of the island, and he, he felt he'd let the family down and he'd let himself down and he threw himself into enormously hard work as a businessman in Birmingham, uh, really trying to make good the, the wasted years. But he, he had a sense of guilt. Uh, later in his career, he was director of, national, of, of, of labor in the First World War. At a dead end of a job that he was put into, it went badly. And the interesting thing is that what he's saying to friends is, oh, I've done it again. I've made a failure again. So he he was a he was a man who did not like making having failures, and he took a lot of pain for the rest of his life to make sure that there was never another Andros. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I say because of that, while Chamberlain was certainly not the man who won the Second World War, he was the man who ensured that it wasn't lost. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. 
Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. You've mentioned a couple of times already that he wasn't necessarily a particularly nice man. What do you mean by that? Could you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yes, he he'd had a very narrow education. He hadn't been sent to um, Oxford or Cambridge like um, like his brother Austin. He went to a, a technical college, really, um, Mason College in Birmingham, subsequently becomes part of Birmingham University. Uh, then he is an accountant, so he has a he has a narrowish view of life, um, in which it's quite easy to become um, confident uh, about his own abilities. Uh, he sees things in fairly black and white terms, so he, he doesn't uh, he thinks people are either right or wrong. Usually, he is right. He's very able, and he doesn't make many mistakes. So, Nick Smart, for instance, historian who examined the huge volume of correspondence between Chamberlain and his two sisters, carried on throughout his life. One of the kind of redeeming features actually makes him a little more human. Uh, but Nick Smart says he's an, un, an unpleasant man, a nasty piece of work. And he had contempt for those who disagreed with him. Increasingly, he saw the Labour Party as too bound up in dogma to be effective politicians. And he's very rude to them. And Baldwin says, you, you mustn't do that. You mustn't treat them as if you have contempt for them. But he says to his sisters, but in fact... They are pretty contemptible. Uh, so uh, he 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 was a great bully. Also, uh, when he became prime minister, he dominated by his ability as much as anything else. He dominated the cabinet, and he and his fixers made sure that the press gave a very favourable account of everything he did. If he didn't like what people were saying, journalists were saying, he would contact their editors and they would just be disappeared. Uh, similarly, he was very, he and the whips were very harsh on critics within the Conservative Party, like the Duchess of Athol, who stepped out of line and um, the party turned on her to dispose of her. So he was authoritarian, contemptuous of others, thought he was right and thought that because he was right, he was justified in doing anything he wanted to get his own way. So I, as I say, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to say in the book that um, he was an effective politician. He did a lot of very good things. What he is thought to have done badly, that's to say getting into the Second World War, wasn't quite as simple and as bad as it looked. But I'm certainly not saying that he's the kind of man you'd want to spend an evening with. I think we'd much rather spend an evening with Churchill. OK, so Neville Chamberlain have this, has this reputation as kind of the standard bearer of, of appeasement and also being a, you know, according to some people, a credulous fool. And, but the 
the title of one of your chapters is Talking of Peace and Preparing for War. Now, that kind of suggests something slightly different, doesn't it? That Chamberlain was very much alive to the dangers of, of, of Hitler. And so should he, does he deserve more credit for, you know, realising what was coming? Yeah, I think so. Um, the um, Second World War effectively began with Hitler's onslaught in 1940. That's when the Cold War ended. And almost immediately, Chamberlain is replaced by Churchill. And almost immediately after that, the Battle of Britain begins. Battle of Britain begins in June, perhaps 1940, July. And it's over by September 1940. Churchill became Prime Minister in May. Beaverbrook became Minister of Aircraft Production in May 1940. So the planes that won the Battle of Britain, were planes that had been commissioned, paid for, and to an extent built on uh, Chamberlain's watch, not on Churchill's, not on Beaverbrook's. Now, I say because of that, while Chamberlain was certainly not the man who won the Second World War, he was the man who ensured that it wasn't lost. Because after, after Munich, he had embarked on a huge building programme, largely for the Air Force. Uh, it had gone on before that. He wasn't, Chamberlain was always alert to the importance of defence. Way back in the First World War, he had been arguing for a much stronger navy than we had. He was heavily involved in the Territorial Army. In the 30s, when Churchill was Chancellor of the Exchequer, Churchill, for reasons of economy, was trying to rein in naval spending. Chamberlain, on the other hand, was arguing for naval spending. In the 1935 general election, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, he wanted to fight that election on the issue of defence. He took it very seriously. Baldwin, who was a more cautious politician, thought he would lose the election on that basis, and Chamberlain wasn't allowed to, to fight it on that basis. But in the Defence White Papers of 1936 and 1937, which were his work, there was an enormous increase in expense uh, in, in spending on defence. And the 1937 budget, which was his last budget as Chancellor of the Exchequer, devoted a great deal of money to defence. I've argued that he was preparing right up till 1937. He was effectively preparing for war. Yet we have this episode in 1938 when he makes three trips to Germany. And this is where a lot of the damage is done. He said, I think largely by way of wishful thinking, he said, for instance, I got the impression that Hitler was a man who could be relied upon when he'd given his word. So he seems credulous. He seems totally fooled by Hitler. But I, I think, as you said, Spencer, I, um, it's important to remember that while he was talking to Hitler and while he was apparently capable of being taken in by him, he was preparing for war, but he felt he had to explore peace too. He was too old, really, to fight in the First World War, although he was involved in some aspects of, of the war um, as a civilian. But his um, cousin, two of, two of his cousins had died in the First World War. One of them was his cousin Norman, 
one of these remarkable men of that generation who seemed to be so so special, brought up in a time when self-sacrifice and duty were highly regarded, and he was one of this golden generation. And Chamberlain, although he was older than Norman, he, he rather worshipped him, and he wrote, uh, the only book he wrote was a memoir of Norman, which he printed, published for the family after the war. And in it, he recalls Norman saying, all of this, he's talking about everything that was awful on the Western Front, all of this can only be worthwhile if it never, ever happens again. And that animated Chamberlain hugely. It chimed in with his ideas that people mattered, that the human condition should be improved. And he wanted, above all, to ensure that another generation didn't go through what Norman and his other cousin had gone through. Remember, at the end of the First World War, the Versailles Settlement, series of settlements that created the peace, were widely thought to have been unfair to Germany. Even Churchill, who seems so often the antithesis of Chamberlain, even Churchill thought that the peace was badly designed and that the Germans were entitled to redress of some grievances. And that was, of course, was what appeasement meant. It didn't have the unfortunate connotations that it has now. It was regarded, it was a foreign office doctrine, and it meant redressing genuine grievances so as to... um, create a a fairer world. It wasn't a supine giving in to Germany. It was identifying uh, legitimate grievances. The First World War settlements at Versailles had really been designed to make sure that Germany and Austria-Hungary were far too weak ever to threaten the West again. So chunks of German-speaking areas were taken away from Germany, and that included the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, which uh, was the grievance uh, as Hitler saw it, which led to the meetings uh, uh, culminating in the Munich meeting. But there was a perception that that Hitler did have some genuine grievances and that if they were addressed, then a world settlement, a general settlement, as it was called, could be arrived at in which grievances would be settled at discussions and meetings and not by war. And Church and Chamberlain clung onto this too long, as we can see. Well, was it too long? I mean, he we couldn't have fought in 1938 because at that time France and um, Russia were unpredictable. We hadn't got the armaments that he was amassing a lot of people didn't want us to go to war. The, the chiefs of staff thought that Britain couldn't go to war in Europe as well as in the Far East, and that the Far East, the threat to our empire, was what really mattered. The Commonwealth, apart from New Zealand, took very much the same view. They thought that it would be to their disadvantage, disadvantage of the Eastern Empire, if we got embroiled in a European war. So there was very little possibility by 1938, when the Munich Agreement and the and the other flights to Germany took place, there was very little alternative by then to doing what he did do. And he was, at the same time, building up armaments 
as strongly as he possibly could. So we were in a much stronger position by 1940 than we would have been in 1938. And all of this, I think, taken together, doesn't exonerate him. The, the war took place. It took place on his watch. He has to accept some responsibility for that. But I think our reaction should be more nuanced than the traditional sort of Man of Munich uh, legend. Do we know what Chamberlain made of Hitler on a personal basis? Well, I quoted what he said about he got the impression that he was a man whose word could be relied upon. But at the same time, that was for public consumption. At the same time, he said to Alec Glass, formerly, uh, later the Earl of Hume, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, who was his PPS, he said that Hitler was half mad, the commonest little dog you ever saw, <laughs> the most detestable and bigoted man he'd ever had to do business with. I don't think he had very serious illusions about Hitler. I think from time to time, he allowed his wishful thinking to get the better of him. But I think he was always conscious that, and he said as much, that he was conscious that he had to keep trying. With, with hindsight, maybe he tried a little too long. But as I say, he couldn't really have gone to war at that time anyway. The last time uh, that we could really have faced up to Hitler was probably 1936, when he remilitarized the Rhineland. Do you think Chamberlain had an inkling when he died of how bad his reputation would be over the following half century? Yeah, I think he was pretty clear. He was pretty bitter by then. I mean, he'd enjoyed the heights of public approval. You know, of course, the way in which he received when he came back from Munich presented with a thousand umbrellas or something of the sort, crowds flocking to run beside his car, idolising the man, uh, received on the balcony of Buckingham Palace personally by the king and queen. And a year later, he's being hounded by the press, who had never liked him. They'd always tended, the press lords always tended to support Churchill, and he was, yeah, he was bitter. He read what was being said about him and he said to his sisters, because he was still continuing this close correspondence with them, he told them that uh, it was so unfair and this was so different from what they had been saying about him in the past, but he, he recognised that it, it, wasn't going to, um, it wasn't going to change. I, no, I, I think he, he wasn't a realist, at very many times, as I said earlier, he thought quite a long time after the Norway debate that he would come back and replace Churchill. He, he wasn't terribly realistic, but by the end, I think he knew very well what his place in history was going to be. Having said that, his gravestone is a very simple stone, and on it, carved by his instruction, are the words from a poem Mark me down as a man who loved his fellow men. And that, I think, is interesting. It's, we don't think of him as a, a kind of huggy, touchy-feely, lovey character, but I think he was meaning by that a kind of Victorian concept of practical love, practical kindness. And he was, of course, a Victorian man. And I think he was looking back at what he had done principally probably in domestic affairs, 
but also in relation to foreign affairs. He thought that he had done the best for ordinary people. And um, we may find it difficult to chime in exactly with that and underscore it, but um, there was something in that. Finally, Walter, with all this in mind, what do you think when polls repeatedly rank him as being among Britain's worst prime ministers? I mean, do you you think that's an unfair assessment? I think it is an unfair assessment, and polls can be capricious. In his lifetime, opinion polls were just emerging as semi-serious studies. Um, And you've got to take them with a pinch of salt, I think. One of about that epoch said that 35% of the population believed that married women shouldn't be allowed to go to work. So their attitudes are pretty remote. But he was, I mean, he was top of the polls in his lifetime. His policies at Munich and at the other meetings with Hitler were widely endorsed by public opinion. Even a year later, I mean, the, the Munich Agreement was supposed to have meant that Hitler would take no further aggressive action. A year later, he marches into Prague, Czechoslovak capital. Uh, even then, when it's seen that his policy has failed and is in disarray, the polls are still marking him out as, uh, as having the approval of ordinary people. Prime Minister, he becomes Prime Minister in 1937 and... War is 1939, so it's kind of difficult not to mention the war here. But I think if you're making an appraisal of him as a whole, you have to look at what he did before the war too. He gets into Parliament, he very quickly becomes a minister and very quickly becomes Minister of Health. Elections are won and lost. He is Minister of Health on no less than three occasions, 1923, again from 24 to 29, again in 1931. He's Chancellor of the Exchequer twice, 1923, and then 31 to 37. Now, he chooses on two occasions to go back to health, although it's technically a a less prestigious position than Chancellor. But the Minister of of Health was enormously, enormously important in these days. There wasn't a Minister of Housing, Minister of Health really had to do with everything that affected the ordinary life of ordinary people. And he did an enormous amount there. He, in housing, he passed rent restriction acts, which were very unpopular with Tories. It meant that landlords had to look after the structure of the houses from which they derived rent. They were limited in what they could charge. They were obliged to make improvement to their properties. Between 24 and 28, he built a million houses and obliged local authorities to build millions more. He presided over 58 slum clearance schemes. He did all the boring things he had been doing at Birmingham as Lord Mayor. He improved sanitation, he improved hospitals, he improved water supply. He revolutionised pensions, creating something effectively like the new national insurance system on which Labour was to build after the war. He ended the poor law, the Dickensian or Thomas Hardy idea of of poor law guardians and poor houses all disappeared. Uh, It was an incestuous system of overseers replaced with modern 
democratic control by elected local authorities. He invented the modern rating system, and he revolutionized local government to support it all. Now, in these ways, this comes back to his idea about Mark Me Down as a man who lived his fellow, loved his fellow men. In these ways, he changed the nature of British society wholesale. The Asquith government after the, before the First World War, of course, had laid the foundations for the welfare state, and the Labour government after 1945 built on it. But what they were building on was really what Chamberlain had done between the wars. And most of this was done not as prime minister, but in the years before Baldwin held on as prime minister for a long time. But effectively, the domestic policy was dominated by Chamberlain. So I think if you take his life as a whole and aren't mesmerized by the appeasement years, he should be seen as a very important, um, I still say not particularly likable, but very practical man who moved Britain more than anyone else has done, I think, from Victorianism and the realities of laissez-faire economics to a more benevolent, kinder and more modern state. That was Walter Reed. Neville Chamberlain, the passionate radical, is out now, published by Berlin. If you found this conversation on Chamberlain interesting and you'd like to learn more about the Munich Conference, then make sure you check out a conversation I had last month with Robert Harris when we spoke about the new Netflix film Munich, The Edge of War, which is inspired by Robert's 2017 book, Munich. You can find that by searching for Munich on your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.